Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. Today's guest is someone who I've admired for years and whose books I have and whose work I just really think is so important to share with everyone. So I'm really excited to have Kelly Brogan on the podcast today. Kelly is a holistic psychiatrist, author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, Own Yourself, the children's book, A Time for Rain, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She's the founder of the online healing program, Vital Mind Reset, and the membership community, Vital Life Project. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in systems neuroscience. She is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. She is a certified KRI Kundalini yoga teacher and a mother of two. Hi, Kelly. Hi there. (laughs) Great to be here. So good to have you. I'm really excited. I have so many questions um, I've wanted to just ask you forever, but I think the best way to start, I, I just love learning a little bit of history and background about our guests. And you have um, such an extensive you know, portfolio and experience, and you've been trained professionally, but you have this amazing holistic view and you're not afraid to share your perspective. And I really, really um, admire that deeply, deeply admire the courage to do that. Not very many people do. And so um, I just want to know, like when you got into this work, did you go into it, like really trusting the system and then realizing it wasn't working? Like, how did that all come to be? Perfect. I I have to take issue with the uh, assertion that it's courageous for me to express myself, because I think that most of us who have, uh, you know, manifested the microphone, (laughs) you know, and the opportunity to speak their minds have done so because we can't not. And it actually feels safer for me to express myself than to not. And not everybody is, you know, is sort of wired that way. Uh, Their defenses didn't line up that way. For me, you know, the courage that I experience in my life is in my mothering, is in my romantic relationship. Um, It's in taking long, hard looks at the aspects of myself that uh, are generating suffering in my own life, you know? So it it really doesn't feel uh, like a courageous act to um, share, share what I have to say. And I'm grateful that anybody cares to listen, uh, and that people happen to agree because there is a loneliness that is at the core of having a non-dominant perspective that is soothed, you know, when, when it's, um, you know, received by others. So that, that is a funny thing how that works. But, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I absolutely, um, was a dyed in the wool, uh, you know, cult member of the allopathic church. And, you know, it's so interesting about cult psychology is that, you know, when you are being inducted, often uh, you're aware of that in a traditional cult setting, right? And there isn't this, you know, effort to induct more and more and more of the population to sort of like take, um, you know, some sort of uh, control over the census. But that is very much what Western medicine has positioned itself to be is the dominant, you know, religious cult of our time. And actually my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez said that to me years ago. He said, you know, conventional Western medicine is the last remaining religion. And I was like, what do you mean? There's so many religions, you know, that are, um, very actively, you know, being engaged by so many people. And, and he insisted that, you know, it is the most powerful scientism is the most powerful religion of our time. And we're seeing that, you know, we see people like the, you know, hallowed figures like the Dalai Lama, you know, insisting that despite his, his uh, religious belief system, you know, that he's going to eat veal to cure his uh, liver problems because his doctor said so, you know, and there's mm-hmm. so many instances where uh, currently where um, churches, you know, especially in the vaccinology realm, churches and other religious institutions bow to the authority of Western medical uh, dogma 
and you know are are implying and sometimes overtly stating that it's actually the scientific perspective that trumps everything you know so i was just another cog in the wheel uh and because when i was at mit i became um, very convinced that we could crack the the code of human suffering through psychiatric medication and psychiatric treatment and i was kind of led down that uh path by a suicide hotline that i worked uh called nightline and suicide is um or it was i think it probably still is quite a uh, relevant concern uh, at mit at the time and it was very busy uh, service, you know, that we provided. It was like a phone hotline. And we were supervised by a psychiatrist. And I had this lovely old man who, you know, helped me to understand all of these calls that I would get, you know, over the course of the night and how it was that we could help these folks. And so I went to medical school, you know, to ease ultimately my own discomfort with human suffering. I mean, that's really what allopathic doctoring is. We have zero distress tolerance. We have zero capacity to truly bear witness to someone else's process, which necessarily involves, you know, challenge, adversity, things like, you know, grief and fear and pain. And we have uh, such a tremendous um, unreconciled (laughs) relationship to death uh, that the entire infrastructure is built around this effort to avoid at all cost an experience yeah. of adversity or challenges or um, seeming suffering. And so, you know, I, I, ha- I still have, you know, trouble um, experiencing the suffering of others and understanding that their journey is very meaningful for them. And it has many, many aspects that I can never possibly understand because I am fundamentally not that person, right? I can only look through my own eyes. Uh, and so at that time, you know, it was very alluring to imagine that I could just do a bunch of memorizing and then I could be a good person and I could, um, have all the people around me feel okay so that I could feel okay. Yeah. You know why I went into not only psychiatry, but actually, um, specialized in pregnant and breastfeeding women who I experienced as, you know, being the most vulnerable population. Um, but I specialized in, in medicating them, believe it or not. (laughs) So, so yeah, I've, I've done, um, I've interviewed people who did a documentary on, um, a woman, a postpartum woman, you may have heard of her in Los Angeles who, um, had postpartum psychosis and she went on to, um, kill her children. And, um, it was just such an interesting and eye opening perspective on, just the lack of support, but then talking about how, oh, like there's a treatment, you can just give them a medication and they're good. And it's like, it's just so sad because really what they need is just like love and support during the process, not just like a pill that's just going to apparently solve their problem. But, um, well, it's probably actually the pill that drove that incident. In fact, I don't know of a single incident of infanticide that has been media publicized that wasn't directly causally linked to a medication prescribed to that woman. And it's, it's very well document, documented from phenomenon called akathisia uh, and the impulsivity and violence that is induced in these particular patients um, is, is directly caused by the medication itself. So that's what we see over and over again in allopathy is that whatever these medications purport to resolve, they actually induce. And Mm -hmm. often recidivistically, like often chronically and in a way that cannot be easily resolved. Uh, And so, you know, what you're saying is so it's so true, because if we don't acknowledge the context of the narrative a patient is living, then it's very easy to say, well, you have a problem. Right. And I uh, often quote Krishnamurti, um, you know, to say that it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. So when we when we are raising children, you know, I, I practice in Manhattan. Most women raise their babies uh, on their own <laughs> with no guidance. There's no chain of, of you know, uh, matrilineal wisdom being passed down to them. They, they, you know, have a couple of weeks off of work, you know, to try and get their act together and hire a nanny and figure out this whole breastfeeding thing. And probably that's not even going to work because they have a hundred friends that didn't work for. And maybe there's a yeah. mommy and me group that can, you know, go to down the street and they're essentially doing it on their own. And, and I've often said, you know, never in human history, has a woman ever been alone with an infant? If, if that ever were the case, it would be cause for neurobiological alarm for that woman, right? 
her to marshal her resources to manage what is clearly an emergency because where is the rest of the tribe, right? What has happened? Has everybody been killed, right? Is she just abandoned? And so to expect that we would adapt to that, let alone, you know, physiologically what goes on when you trash your body for 30 years and then expect to adapt to the complex milieu of postpartum uh, inner apothecary, you know, without any issues, right? In, in your eating McDonald's and, you know, you've never exercised a day in your life and you've been using toxic products and all the rest. So forget that part, just the psychological, psycho-spiritual, psycho-emotional aspects of this fabric having been um, unwoven, you know, it, it would be strange to sail through that, <laughs> you know, without incident. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that perspective. And I completely agree. I'm Iranian. And so I grew up understanding like tradition and, and the way my culture does it. And, and so that kind of led me down the path of loving the Ayurvedic perspective and, and, you know, the Chinese medicine perspective and everything. And so, um, it just makes so much sense. And so for someone like you who specialized in that and specialized in pregnant and postpartum women and understanding the whole picture. I mean, is that when, like, is that when it started clicking for you? How did that happen that you went from um, medicating them to realizing, you know, this isn't the, that one size medicine isn't the answer? So I had a moment, right? We always have these, these moments where our inner reality is not necessarily jiving with our outer, you know, reality where the, the truth, uh, inside of us is kind of like eking out. Right. And we normally, it's called cognitive dissonance, right. When that happens and we normally have, you know, pretty reflexive mechanisms to just suppress it again, right. To side with the sort of familiar and exclude an awareness of what might be attempting to spring forth, right? So I had one of those moments when I was medicating, uh, writing a prescription for a patient um, and for an antidepressant. And I was pregnant at the time. Uh, so in my specialization, my fellowship, I was pregnant during that, you know, most of that year and treating pregnant patients. And I remember having this inconvenient thought that I would never want to take one of these medications. I don't care. If there are 80,000 cases at the time, there were about 20,000 in registry form of reports of, you know, relatively, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes babies uh, who had been exposed to SSRI antidepressants. And I, you know, I knew all of the literature supporting the relative safety, of course, relative to dangerous unmedicated depression, um, as if there's nothing else you can do other than yeah. take a med or just suffer. Um, and I just thought I would never, I could never be convinced, uh, even by somebody as good as convincing people as me. <laughs> right? So I just thought, no way. And I ignored that because it was ethically confusing and also very inconvenient. And that same kind of like, I don't know, energetic rumbling surfaced again. I was about 10 months postpartum and I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, on a routine physical um, at an integrative health center in New York. And I thought, well, I don't want to take a medication. You know, I don't care if it's just a hormone. I don't care what it is. I don't want to take a medication for the rest of my life. I'm not doing that. There's got to be some sort of escape hatch. And so uncharacteristically, I sought out uh, a naturopath and I wanted to see what she was up to, you know, like what she could help me with. And she uh, recommended that I go gluten and dairy free and she recommended a bunch of supplements. And that's pretty much all that I did at that time. And I was able to put on paper, that was very important for me in the way that my brain works. I was able to put my uh, Hashimoto's in remission on paper in the space of a year. And I did take natural hormone for a while uh, in that year and then went off it and have never taken it since. And my numbers have been stable ever since. That This was 11 years ago. Uh, and that exploded something inside of me. And honestly, for whatever reason, um, I was very rageful. I wasn't like excited, you know, that I put this into remission. I'd never been told that an autoimmune condition could be put into remission in all of my expensive training and stressful training. Uh, instead, I was probably because of that, um, very, very righteously angry and 
I just like hit the books and I spent God, months just really what could be characterized as somewhat <laughs> obsessively researching um, everything I could get my hands on that was contrary to what I had been taught. Uh, and I started with, you know, uh, nutrition and I looked into all of the different understandings of the interconnectedness. I learned about a field called psychoneuroimmunology, uh, which had been in existence, you know, coined by, in that term for several decades at that point. Uh, and I began to understand, you know, through that lens of looking at the body as responsive to the environment, why would we engage pharmaceuticals and why would we uh, reconsider? you know, what are the adverse effects that we're not learning about as doctors and how beneficial are they really, right? So what might be some of the reasons we're given the impression that they are uh, more promising than they actually are according to the published scientific literature. So I also read a book at that time called Anatomy of an Epidemic, which um, as, you know, synchronicities would have it, a colleague gave to me and she said, you know, what do you think of this book? You've prescribed these meds and it's pretty confusing to me because I refer to psychiatrists and you know, this book is by investigative journalist Robert Whitaker, and he talks about 16 studies I had never heard about uh, that are non-industry funded, and the assertion that it's medication that is driving through, you know, what is referred to in the business as iatrogenesis, so doctor-induced harm, that is driving chronic mental illness incidents. So, he, that was a hypothesis he went out to investigate and he interrogated all of this uh, science that suggests that actually the natural course of these so-called mental illnesses is far more benign than anything that surfaces when we introduce medications. And that is whether we're talking about so-called schizophrenia, OCD, ADHD, depression, anxiety. Literally, he went through every single category and to my mind, unimpeachably demonstrated that medication is the problem that the benefits are not there and that the risks are legion. And I finished the last page of that book and I never started a patient on medication again, my entire career. Gosh. And that's how I started to learn about not only what does it look like to come off these meds? Because of course, then I offered every single patient in my practice um, the opportunity to discontinue having no idea. You know, I was never, no one's ever trained on how to do that. Yeah. To learn that, uh, you know, um, kind of trial by fire. And I also began to learn about, you know, so, okay, so what does suicidality actually look like when you don't intervene with an emergency room and, uh, you know, lorazepam or clonopin or whatever? Uh, what does it actually look like? What is the, the architecture of that human experience of, you know, morbid hopelessness? What happens to those emotions? Do they just get worse and worse and worse and worse and then ultimately somebody kills themselves? Or do they have an arc that's important to learn about? The dark night of the soul, right? The mystics have been uh, describing this for, for millennia. And I became very well acquainted with the dark night of the soul, uh, first through my patients and then through my own life uh, so that I could garner my credentials. Uh, and it was a very intensive period in my practice where I began to understand that I cannot and should not doctor these patients into okayness, that they mm -hmm. have to do it. And ultimately, you know, I recognize the, doc the doctor-patient model is uh, increasingly problematic as a dynamic uh, in our current times and the current collective consciousness, that it's really essential that we practice self-ownership and do the work ourselves and not outsource that agency or project parentified um, powers onto any particular authority figure, myself included. And that's when a couple of years ago I shifted into uh, really group-based um, at this point online, but group-based healing. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Our sponsor for this week is Beekeepers Naturals. I have known about them for a little while now. I interviewed their founder, Carly Stein, on our podcast, and I absolutely love her. I learned so much from her and her journey. I think you guys would love listening to it, but basically that's when I started using the Beekeepers Naturals products. And I was at the time pregnant with my son, Truth, so I couldn't give it to him even when he was born because he was a little too young. Kids can't really use it until they're a little older. So 
I love them because they use this special potent natural ingredient called propolis. And you may have already heard about it, but it's becoming increasingly big in the world of holistic healing. Bee propolis is actually the medicine that bees use to heal themselves. And it also contains over 300 compounds that are beneficial to the human immune system. So after learning all about beekeepers naturals and the power of propolis, I began using their bee immune propolis throat spray and I loved it. I keep one by my bedside. I have one in my car and I have one in my purse as well. And that's because I now my son is two years old and I can give him the kids version. He actually also takes the regular version as well. Sometimes if I don't have the kids one around, but he's old enough now. And it's amazing because if you are feeling like under the weather or you have a sore throat, it works immediately and you can spray it throughout the day. And it's really wild because it feels like it's numbing your throat, but in the best way possible, not like a medication would. And it feels like it's healing it as well. Not just like dealing with the symptom of having a sore throat, but you know, it's working and it tastes really good like honey. So there's no complaints there. So for a limited time, I'm really excited to share that Beekeepers is offering the fullest listeners a free two week supply of bee immune propolis throat spray. And all you need to do is pay $5 for shipping, which is a pretty amazing promotion. So to claim your free trial, you must visit beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash fullest only know that. So be sure to go to B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S, both beekeepers and naturals are plural, dot com forward slash fullest without the in front of it. To us, this is an incredible way to prioritize your immune health. But if for some reason you don't love it, Beekeepers Naturals will refund your $5 no questions asked, which is insane. So there's no reason for you to not go on the website right now and order it. You can also find Beekeepers Naturals nationwide in over 2,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, and Sprouts, and again, on our podcast episode from last year. So be sure to check out that podcast episode with Carly Stein as well. Thanks so much. When you say, well, gosh, there's so much that you just said in there, so I want to kind of get to all of it. Okay, so when you say... um, you experienced it yourself where you were going through a hard time and like, what do you, I'm just curious. I've never personally experienced it. I've had friends that have experienced that. And I'm curious because I view it as just a normal, um, just a normal experience, or I don't want to say the word normal, but everyone has a different experience in life. And, and how do you support those people and encourage them to have, have agency and have ownership and explore and, and like your own experience. I had an experience with, um, let's talk about just thyroid in general, right? I mean, um, you had an experience where you went to a naturopath who helped you with supplements and all sorts of things. But then obviously, I mean, looking at you now and how vocal you are and how much you share and the throat chakra and you're not holding back. And like, that's obviously really important as well. So I'm in these, uh, and that's how I view it as well. So when people are going through a hard time, people you love and you want to support them and you also need to look within yourself to remind yourself to allow them to have the dignity of their own process. Um, and you know, I'm just curious, like if you were as someone who's seen so many patients, like what percentage of the population or like what number you think is like to normalize like these thoughts in a way, like Mm -hmm. you think is normal to have those types of like suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the passage of the dark night of the soul is an initiation process that every single individual is designed to experience. And characteristic of that process, which is very archetypal, characteristic of it is the death of the illusory self. If you don't have guidance from wiser (laughs) elders around you to reflect to you 
that the essential you is not the one that wants to die and is dying and ultimately feels worthy of dying. Then you might fuse with that false identity and think you are the one <laughs> who is um, finished, who wants to press the reset button. So I do think that the feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of being brought to the brink of the death question, the death threshold, a feeling like you cannot possibly, you know, uh, transgress this threshold. You don't have what it takes. To learn that all of that is a lie, you have to cross the threshold, right? So the, the greatest analogy is always, of course, childbirth, right? Most women who are, uh, you know, have a baby crowning at their cervix are going to say, I can't do this, right? Or are going to ask for an epidural or are going to, you know, otherwise want to opt out, which of course is totally irrational and illogical to anyone <laughs> watching because the baby's head is right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's the moment. And only in a supported engagement of the, the, the reality that is before us, that is inviting us to move beyond what we think we can handle, do we discover that we are so much more powerful than we would have imagined in our safe little familiar reality. Now, most of the, you know, in, in indigenous uh, populations, the initiation rituals that are collectively held are for teenagers, right? So the thinking is that in adolescence, you begin the individuation process from mommy and daddy, and you begin to understand what you're made of as a unique, soon-to-be adult individual. Because we live in an infantilized culture where we are kept in extended childhood through college and we are not treated as adults. I mean, my 12-year-old uh, my has a business, has a job, and has written a book, is writing a movie, and is a songwriter and poet, okay? <laughs> this, this it, she's not a, you know, don't let yeah. it, I told you this, she's not a special kind of genius. She is just, I have treated her for a number of years now, the way I treat any of my adult friends, I don't baby her. I don't, you know, hold her to some sort of um, consensus, you know, opinion about what a 12 year old is capable of, which is following rules, sitting in school for eight hours a day or whatever nonsense we've agreed to. Right. So at a certain point in the coming years, she is going to have to understand who she is independent of what I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but if I can self-soothe and if I can take care of my own emotions as she kind of tests the boundaries of what, you know, uh, where, where she ends and I began and vice versa, then we will make it through with a loving experience of individuation. But if I get my ego involved and it becomes a power struggle, often that will be suppressed, right? Because she won't have an experience of, I am loved for who I am, not for what my mama needs me to be. Yeah. Which most of us had that experience. We are narcissistic extensions of our parents and our parents only showed us love when we behaved how they wanted us to behave, right? So my challenge is even, you know, if she decides to go to full matrix or something, you know, like totally, um, head in the sand, which of course would be my, my biggest nightmare. How, I know. <laughs> how can I show her my love, approval and unconditional open heart? And I think about that all the time. Right. Yeah. It's super hard, right? So if because if I don't, then she'll probably be like most of my patients and myself who are beginning the individuation process. Typically it's around like 38, 39, early 40s is my experience. And you know, that I don't know, there's probably some Jungian explanation for why that might be developmentally. But the it, then, you know, what happens then, you have decades of a persona the mask is like nearly adhered, you know, the irony, right? In, in modern times, nearly adhered to your face. And it's, it's got to come off, right? You know, it has to. And so when you rip, rip it off, it's like there's wounds everywhere and there's like blood gushing. It's a mess. So that process, especially when you throw a medication taper into the mix and all of the um, suppressed you know, emotional material, the lack of coping skills, the unfamiliarity with the self and the emotional terrain within, 
Then you throw in the biophysical aspects of coming off of a habit forming chemical. It's, you know, these folks are very special individuals, you know, who choose to walk this path. And I've had the privilege of knowing many hundreds of them. And I have, you know, personally, um, experienced, interestingly, as somebody who's not coming off of psychiatric medication, a very similar psychic terrain. And that's what helped me to see, okay, this is just universal adulting. (laughs) This is actually just what this looks like. You know, when you understand that your fear of rejection, your fear of death, your compliance um, with those around you, their expectations, appeasing them, and your unwillingness to relate outside of your familiar defenses when you're afraid, it looks the same, right? No matter who's experiencing it and for what reason. And, you know, my process really started um, when I fell in love with somebody outside of my marriage. And that, you know, somebody is my current husband, you know, I was happily married at the time. And I had a postcard life. And if anyone built all, you know, arranged all the furniture on the Titanic, well, it was me. (laughs) So I had it all, all figured out, all going well. And that was just the iceberg, right? And um, it, it continued. There's so many turns of the spiral. I mean, it's still happening. I mean, I was in the fetal position crying about my cat being sick (laughs) recently. Like I can be regressed to my, my child self, um, pretty easily, you know? So it's still a process, a spiral like process of expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting. But the, the darkest windows were when I was the least familiar with the kinds of intense emotions that I had buried and tried to architect a life so that I would never feel. So it's never been as intense as those initial, you know, sort of shocks, I would say. I want to know how you ended up falling in love with, okay, so it's Sayer. Yeah, Sayer. I want to know that story. (laughs) How did you guys meet? (laughs) Um, you know, it was through, so, so the activists, so activists, right? Why, why are we, we so-called activists? How do we get involved with that? Like I said, at the beginning, is it because we are, you know, especially brave people who are especially inclined to help others? Perhaps, but why, right? The, the why is very often that we experienced um, a trauma, you know, we experienced, or many, uh, a wound, that led us to believe that the authority, um, you know, the perceived authority is not to be trusted and actually doesn't have our best interests at heart. And we become our own saviors and we live in a world where if we don't continue to fight that authority, it's dangerous. So that's why I'm, I'm trying to describe, like, it's not an act of courage, in my opinion. Like, it's a compulsion uh, towards safety. And so ultimately for, for most of us, you know, who are sort of engaged in spiritual, um, I don't know, awakening, we get to a point where we see, okay, if I feel best when I write a blog about the dangers of the Gardasil vaccine, which is actually how Sayer learned of me (laughs) in the world, then, then how do I feel not safe, right? How would I explore that terrain? What if I shut up? I don't say anything. What does that feel like? Or what if I turn towards my family and I focus on mothering? What does that feel like? Or what if I prioritize my self-care, movement and nutrition and and self-nourishment? What does that feel like, right? So there are all these ways that we disrupt the reflexive program and that's where and how we learn You know what's really inside. And you know I've become many, many versions of myself I mean, I joke about cats because I used to hate cats like a year and a half ago. I thought they were gross. Me too. too. (laughs) They're like greasy and creepy and they always have like dandruff on their hair. (laughs) They're they're just, I don't understand why anybody would want one of these. Ask anyone. My cats are like deities in my household. I have two of them now. So I'm not afraid at this point to be wrong, to, to have misunderstood myself, incompletely seen myself because I already have so much experience trying on so many different, um, preferences, you know, to know that they can shift and change. 
I mean, I am somebody who has advocated for a red meat inclusive diet for the better part of a decade. And I have seen vegetarians and vegans by the hundreds come to my program and practice. And I have seen their lives change when they introduce animal foods into their diet. Mm -hmm. Personally, I am, you know, on the verge of veganism at this point in my, in my own experience, because of some journey that I had to go on, right? Where I, you know, was an ethical vegetarian eating Pepsi, you know, drinking Pepsi, eating pizza and Cheetos before I got pregnant. And it wasn't until my Hashimoto's that I started to introduce, you know, pastured red meat, saw that it put my experience into remission, brought that to my patients, then had that diet sanctioned by my mentor who advocated for 12 different diets and said, okay, well, you see the parasympathetic dominance in your practice. That's why this diet works for them because those are the patients who are likely to experience things like depression or so-called ADHD or multiple chemical sensitivity and, uh, you know, um, hypothyroidism. And so they need red meat in their diet. They'll never, he said, they'll never be well without it. But then there are people on the opposite side of the spectrum that you'll never see the diabetics and those with heart disease. And those are the sympathetic dominance and they don't need any red meat, you know, and they do well on a vegetarian diet. And so I said, okay, this makes sense. And so I don't even experience it as awkward anymore, you know, to kind of like transition into deeper and deeper, more nuanced understanding of the perspectives that I may have held at different points. Uh, But the process, you know, my relationship, sometimes it's referred to in kind of like, I don't know, new agey circles as a twin flame relationship. And Sayer and I learned, you know, very early on, you know, that we have so much in common. Uh, It's eerie. Um, In fact, we've written like a 600 or something page document uh, of love letters to each other over the years. And, you know, I, I read it kind of spliced different paragraphs of it um, as part of our wedding vows. And the reason is I read it is because you can't tell who's speaking. Like our, our voices are relationship to language and um, prosatry is so similar that you, you couldn't even tell. And so that sounds lovely, right? Like you get to be with somebody who's so much like you, you must never fight, right? Um, but these kinds of dynamics are such that our respective defensive structure is either perfectly complementary or totally incompatible, however you want to look at it, you know, yeah. where we lock horns and it can be about the smallest stuff. I mean, we have had drag them out week long arguments about fatty acids, literally about probiotics, about gluten, about HIV. I mean, it's uh, forget it, uh, cosmology. And it is the case that, that I can, I can go from, you know, feeling so opened up by this man to feeling like I want to kill him (laughs) in the space of two sentences. And my inner disturbance is so intense that it can only be, you know, seen through the lens of child psychology, where I literally become like a toddler. And so the the process of remembering, I call it remembering love. In fact, at our rally, uh, Thank You Body Rally last year, I did a whole talk about this, you know, just that I have learned to remember love in times when it's not apparent. And he has taught me that, you know, our relationship and, and how deeply I I adore this man has taught me that I can access that. Oh, I love him. I do love him. Right. Even though I'm feeling so victimized by him in this moment and so sure that I'm right. Um, and you know, he has a tendency to withdraw, uh, and avoid when I, like a lot of women have a tendency to engage and want to process. Um, he has a lot of, you know, sort of dominant feminine energetic defenses. I have a lot of dominant masculine energetic defenses. So we have a lot to learn from each other. And it's um, been like a real, you know, they call it a charnel ground, like a real, uh, like a a desperately ugly space for me to to grow from. And I'm still doing it. Uh, But our process has been uh, trending towards trending towards peace for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what like a, a relationship is really about like a true relationship for spiritual growth. 
and and it's beautiful and it's so amazing to be able to talk about it and i'm so curious so you're a mother of two is your oldest 12 yes i'm a mother of two uh sayer's a father of two and our daughters are actually the same exact age ages uh which is you couldn't have made that up and yeah i have a 12 year old and a, a nine-year-old and you moved to florida from new york because is it for medical freedom or did you guys just happen to like enjoy um you know being there it was it was for sayer actually uh, oh yeah and you know because there's i don't believe that there's ever just harmony for one individual in a matrix of humans like i do believe that we achieve harmony increasing harmony for ourselves and that ultimately brings the mandala of our connections into you know a uh, greater order but i um i knew i had to leave new york like for my own survival. I don't know, spiritual survival, because it so brings out or brought out the defensive structure. And I, unlike my patients, right? Like my shadow is very, very deeply buried. And wherever there is shame or grief or pain or rage, I am so uh, adapted to the dominant culture that my defenses are valued, right? So when I get angry, I become more articulate I become calmer and I can slice and dice pretty much anyone. Wow. And, <laughs> and it is, you know, something that I have unconsciously developed over time because I felt safer in the world, never feeling the feelings, right? And only ever defaulting to my mind. And the only way that I know that I'm in my reactive element is because I feel an urgency to express myself. Right. So like if I get an email that I don't like and I feel rejected or judged, I will have you. I, I can't even go to dinner before I send my response. Right. Like oh it's, urgent. it's urgent. And I will spin off in two minutes something that would take, you know, say or an hour and a half to write, you know, or whatever. And so that seems great. Right. But it's actually made my shadow work far more challenging because it works, you know, what I have going on, but it causes me immense suffering and it pollutes and contaminates my relationships. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew I had to leave New York because it just foregrounded all of that energy, all that masculine energy. Uh, and then I also had gotten to a place where I, I could conceive of not having a brick and mortar life, you know, where I had an in-person practice. And it was at that time that I told you that I was recognizing that the doctor patient thing relative to my online program, there's no comparison. Like my practice started to veer in a direction of like codependency where I had these patients, I couldn't shake them almost, you know? Um, and then these online folks I never met once and I couldn't keep a team of volunteers. Like we, we were so overwhelmed just publishing the outcomes. They were mm -hmm. so miraculous, right? And so for that reason, and also I've always loved this, um, I love tropical. I don't know why I'm Irish and Italian, so I don't know where that is in my uh, genealogy, but I've always loved this. My body feels at home, you know, in this climate. And, you know, my parents followed me, my uh, ex-husband, wow. his girlfriend, Sayer's ex and her uh, partner and Sayer's oh sister. God. Yeah. So it was, again, that mandala just kind of took shape. And now we find ourselves probably in one of the best um, states in the nation, you know, uh, totally. and it just kind of worked out that way. Yeah. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't planned to be that way, but it totally worked out. And so I want to get into COVID a little bit because I'd been following your work, super inspired. I have your books. I mean, I have your children's book too. I, I <laughs> have a toddler, so I was like, I need to get this as many books as I can. Cause there's so many books out there that I'm just like, this is what they're telling they're teaching our children at such a young age even like the curious george books i was reading the other day and i was like this is horrifying <laughs> um so anyways it's so nice to have like another book to refer to from someone who i you know who i love and trust and admire but but when covid happened you were kind of talking about it and then and you had already been you know speaking up about all sorts of things before. But then I remember specifically one day you're like, oh my gosh, this is now personally affecting me. 
I can't even go to my yoga class anymore. And I was just dying when that happened. And I was so intrigued to see, you know, you just like from the get go, just being like, this is ridiculous. And, um, and I, I'm curious, like, what that was like for you, you know, like we talked about earlier, you were like, Oh, we survived that relationship. And really, people were looking to you and Sayer for, for guidance, because people were, I mean, like looking to your stuff, it was actually really amazing, because here we are getting like, all the fear based media. And we need people to tell us like, no, this is not something to be afraid of. And yeah. So I'm just curious, like how that ended up panning out for you and how it was like with your family and, and your children too. Yeah. So, you know, again, most activists hopefully know that when you get overly invested in the anonymous victim, you can end up really pulling vital force energy from your actual real life. And it can be a, a kind of hall of projections, right? To imagine that you're, you know, going to save this unknown stranger somewhere out there in the world by, you know, helping them see the light or whatever. So in the beginning, you know, I saw it from a million miles away. And that's why the video that I, <laughs> against my team's advice, decided to post was the, that back in March, you know, saying that I'm not convinced that, um, this so-called novel, uh, pathological, uh, disease, let alone pathogen actually exists, uh, got me, uh, garnered me a lot of, um, special attention from mainstream media. And, you know, now of course, to say those kinds of things, you know, a year later would be like, okay, everyone for the most part has made a decision about it. But I knew that, you know, I would, I would speak my mind um, and my observations, and then I would turn towards continuing to live my life because that's what I came ultimately to Miami to do is to foreground my experience of mothering uh, and also to foreground my experience of my own feminine healing. And a big part of that uh, has been dance and I uh, was taking daily dance classes. And so at that point, I said, okay, I'm just going to focus on one foot in front of the other and what's actually happening in front of me. And it wasn't until my uh, dance studio gym went full Gestapo, uh, you know, demanding masks during dance class that I, you know, then was like, okay, now I'm going to have to do some groundwork, right? And of course, if you see these experiences as opportunities, what happened there is a microcosmic example of what's happening the world over, uh, which is that I left that studio. And after we're trying to work with the manager, but I left that studio and made, um, now one of my dear friends, you know, who opened up her own studio and is of totally like mind and manifested exactly what I was looking for with totally, you know, sovereign body experience. Yeah. And that's kind of how it works. Right. And similarly, our kids were in a Waldorf school that, um, is so incoherent and so unintegrated with Anthroposophy and Steinarian teachings and principles that they are probably more adherent to mandates than even any public school in the area. It's, it's totally different wow. and wild. Uh, and so we pulled them out of there. And I, I made a friend at the same time um, named Dana Martin, who is an international uh, unschooling um, advocate. I was going to ask you about that. Okay. Yeah. And she uh, just happened to move to Miami <laughs> around that time. And I learned about unschooling, which is essentially the educational equivalent of my kind of self-doctoring uh, ethos. Uh, and, you know, there's an equivalent in all of these arenas that we've been conditioned socially to expect and, and believe that we need authority structures to implement. Uh, and, you know, people think that anarchy means like burning down buildings, but that's part of the conditioning as well. So self-governance um, comes into all these arenas, financial, economic, ed educational, uh, and, you know, medical, if you want to call it that. And so I became a real advocate for unschooling uh, with some caveats because I do, I do still believe, and I could see the, you know, the shadow in this, but I do still believe that, you know, it's my role as a mother to protect my children. 
uh, and I, I do protect them um, from media and uh, from, you know, fake foods, for example. Uh, and, you know, so I, that's not completely unschooling um, philosophy in terms of radical unschooling. But I've really come to appreciate, you know, that when I give my children free reign to pursue their own interests, uh, amazing things happen. I mean, my my eldest is proof that anybody can find a job. (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, she's manifested um, this beautiful opportunity. And did that come from unschooling or was it kind of already happening with the Waldorf? Oh, it was kind of happening, but you know, when you're spending eight hours warehoused with strangers in a rule following, uh, organized, you know, curriculum, how much, uh, there's only 24 hours in a day, right? Like how much time do you actually have to pursue, you know, what it is that you actually might be interested in? So, you know, Yeah. yeah. So she, her interest, she's interested in, in natural beauty and she's interested in you know, kind of media and general poetry, movies, you know, writing, whatever. And to flesh that out, you know, she's got to try stuff. She's got to have experiences. And so she's really run with it. And she also has chosen to take six public school classes in the like Florida virtual school. It's like a public school that I would never advocate for. I mean, for me, for her to spend her time, any of her time learning a pile of lies, (laughs) You know, I am certainly not an advocate for that, but part of unschooling is letting her, you know, make these decisions and learn for herself, you know, and I'm free to express myself. We've actually done something called family school where every night one of us, uh, teaches something, you know, that we're interested in the kids and me and Sayer included. And we just kind of rotate and it's been awesome. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I, I want to pass on and teach them. And I would never have really thought about that in a formal way, you know, like we're all sitting down to do this now and I'm going to teach you all how to make flower remedies or, you know, I'm going to teach you all about the maybe principle, you know, or I'm going to, whatever, whatever is of interest to me. And, um, it's been, it's been a beautiful experience. So I think I'm along with so many, uh, who are doing the work and committed to seeing the purpose and meaning in what's happening without bypassing the evil in our midst. We, we understand that we have participated in our own somnolence and our own sleepiness and our process of awakening, you know, not only may require some uncomfortable acknowledgement of, you know, our participation in our own feelings of enslavement and entrapment and oppression, uh, but also will, will provide us opportunity to experience true, true freedom and liberation, not, not what we think we can get from the authority figures we're condemning and judging, right? That's a different kind of, in fact, I heard somebody say, you know, liberty that's what we have in this country. It's like when you're a prisoner and you're let out to the yard, that's called a liberty. But freedom is inborn, right? And the reclamation of that freedom is a very different thing than the uh, engagement of liberties offered by an oppressive, you know, authoritarian energy. Yeah. Wow. Something you said in there too. I have interviewed Zach Bush and he says, or he said at one point, like, we out, we wanted this, like we wanted to outsource everything. So we, we chose to have our food systems like this because we didn't want to grow our own food. We chose to sit on the couch and watch TV and Netflix and have everyone else do everything for us. And so in a way we participated in this and that's like exactly what you're saying. That's kind of the beauty in my opinion about everything that's going on now, because I know so many people that have really woken up and realized they had all these dreams. They wanted to do all these things. They wanted to plant the garden. They wanted to do everything, but we were just so busy. And then with what happened last year, I mean, you know, even like the unschooling thing, like you're saying, it's, it's something I've personally been interested in, but it's just, nice and it's nice to believe that the Waldorf school system is going to um to help our kids a certain way but then at the end of the day like you said it's still just another system that they're just sitting and learning from rather than what your philosophy is which is all the um you know sovereignty and self-advocacy and really and and I think it really just all goes back to um, strengthening our intuition and our trust in ourselves and our ch- intuition and, and us becoming like clairvoyant, like Rudolf Steiner, because 
I mean, his work is just so incredible and powerful. And, and, um, like you said, it's just so sad that I, I know that I live in Orange County and the Waldorf school here is so incredible. But again, I, I've heard so many people say that they're, they're just like going backwards now. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think the unschooling movement is super cool, but I know we're short on time, but I just wanted you to share about the vital mind reset as well, because, um, yeah, there, there's just not much opportunity to find people like you to do this work with. And, and so it's really awesome that you're doing it. Yeah. So as I mentioned, when I started to recognize that the outcomes that were coming out of the online program, which is the exact same, same materials, same downloads, same rhetoric, same everything uh, that I was doing in my clinical practice were better. That's when I started to see like, oh, the doctor patient thing, that's over. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I also had a, a crazy long wait list at the time. And so, you know, it, it kind of worked for us to be able to offer this to folks, but at literally a fraction of my fees, because I've always valued my time and <laughs> experience and expertise. Um, and so, you know, it, it was an opportunity also for uh, the investment to be more accessible, though I am a big believer because it's funny, I've given the program away for free to a number of friends and acquaintances. And I have never had a single person do it, let alone like an amazing outcome. So I'm a big believer in the relationship that we have to money um, and the psychology. I mean, it's interesting because in Miami, the I can't afford it um, kind of self-diminishing psychology is very prevalent. Whereas wow. in New York, my experience was like, I don't know, people didn't really say that. They kind of just like made it happen, hustled and made it happen. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot to that because when we, when we experience our relationship to, um, money as a limiting factor that we don't have control over to an extent that we are unable to pursue our own, um, self healing, you know, I don't know. It's controversial. And I, I, you know, a lot of people love, it's a lot of women criticizing women too. I've noticed people love to, uh, oh, yeah. comment on this subject, but I stand by it completely unapologetically. So we offered the program has been the same price since we started it. It's about a thousand dollars. And so it's an uncomfortable investment for a lot of people, right? And uh -huh. what comes with that uncomfortable prioritization and investment is that they have to actually do it <laughs> to justify the investment and they actually um, turn their attention towards it. And the program is not that unique, I wouldn't say, other than the aspects of it that involve my mentor's work because I was the only one who was ever mentored by him in 27 years. Um, wow. So, you know, like his particular way of doing coffee enemas and stuff like that is exclusively in there because I value very much his uh, proprietary information. Um, but it's really more the ritual of self-attention and self-care because there's nowhere you can do this program uh, with kind of a, an on-the-side kind of vibe. It has to be your priority. You become the focus of your everyday and I think even neurobiologically, something happens uh, in that state. So there are many ways to achieve that, right? I mean, you could go to like a month-long wellness center experience or whatever and probably have a similar outcome. Um, but here you get to continue to live your life with your self-care foreground in. And of course, a lot of the first two weeks of the program are just unbrainwashing you. Because I, God, I never I never knew how unique I, I was. I always have had this kind of like lonely feeling you know, um, alone feeling is more accurate, but I never realized that I am pretty much one of the only MDs on the planet who has a public offering and a public, you know, platform who actually believes in natural healing. Yeah. Unequivocally. Actually, I actually truly believe that the body does not make mistakes and that no, there is no role for things like germ theory because all that germ theory does is propagate and perpetuate victimhood and fear of bodies and fear of your own bodies and belief in, you know, magical, demonized, invisible particles that are no different, you know, from the terrorist uh, PSYOP that we all succumb to after 9-11. So no, there's no role for that. There's no role for masking. There's no role for vaccines. There's no role for any of this. And I have watched every single one of my colleagues, you know, capitulate 
And of course, you know, many of them are functional medicine trained and that whole institution has been co-opted uh, for years by the Cleveland Clinic and all of those influences. Yeah. Some of it is top down, but like, wow. So yeah, this is it. <laughs> this is the only program on the internet um, designed by somebody who actually believes in your capacity to heal. And I've, I've come to understand that when you know what's possible, so if you know that healing Graves' disease is possible, if you know that healing lupus is possible, if you know that healing recidivistic schizophrenia is possible, if you know that suicidal, you know, multiple suicide attempt depression healing is possible. And we, we, you know, put these testimonials out there. We publish these cases. We have a randomized trial. If you know that your own inner conviction could be ignited, right? And that's all that's happening. So you're, you're entering into a field, you know, like Joe Dispenza is another person who has like a tremendous field that his, um, you know, followers and whatever you want to call them have helped to generate. And now the field has a healing capacity of its own, right? So he's doing it. Yeah, kind of, but it's also the field. And, you know, on a smaller scale, I think that's operative for me too, because I'm not doing this to or for anyone. It's the field that exists that has generated these um, seeming miracles, right? Which my friend Charles Eisenstein describes as um, really ultimately just being a, a story that does not fit with the existing story, right? So it's called a miracle, but it is the bridge. It's the bridge into a new expanded consciousness, a new expanded reality. And taking personal responsibility for our experiences and resolving what I call the only human pathology, which is the victim consciousness, is how we step into our new reality. And we have no idea what that even looks like because we're in the process of taking that responsibility now. And, you know, for me, it's looked like all sorts of things, growing my own food and getting off my smartphone and really understanding like, okay, every time I order from Amazon, I am participating very actively, like you said. And there are going to be ways that I don't want to look at, right? Um, And so how can I, I, you know, really, really get serious about taking the wheel of my car because someone else is going to take it if I don't. Wow. That's so beautiful. I want to join. <laughs> I, I believe the same thing. I don't think that your body makes mistakes. And I, I, every time I hear a story, I mean, a friend of mine who she used to work for me, she just told me like weeks ago, she said, I have horrible news. I went, I'm, I was in Israel. I went to the ER for a dental infection I drove myself there and she has like a, um, like two year old son. And she said, um, they told me that I have leukemia and I have three weeks to live if I don't do anything right this second. And I was like, how can someone tell you that? Like you go in there and they don't know anything about you. You're completely healthy. Like your teeth, something in your tooth hurts, but otherwise like you don't think you're just going to drop dead in three weeks. And like, that's, that is so wrong. And I, I mean, she's well, hexed, right? So remember that it's, it's a cult and that, yeah. is, that is a hexing. It is literally a spell. And Sayer has published literature in the cancer realm that describes unequivocally that your risk of dying after a diagnosis like that, you know, is, is, I think it was like 16 fold increased or something like that. And, you know, I'm a big fan of German new medicine, um, that I learned about in recent years, actually, because of my, um, I don't know what it's called when it's an ex mother-in-law, but my ex-husband's, um, (laughs) mother who, you know, who introduced it to me, um, as she actually was in the process of, and you know, the end of her life. And it's such a beautiful paradigm because it resolves all of the fear, right. Of, contagion, so-called contagion of cancer. And you begin to understand, oh, if you randomly catch cells in a process that is totally normative based on certain kinds of biological adaptations that we make to perceive stress or danger or fear or shock. Yeah. So the screening process, catching, you know, these cells in a, you know, a dental (laughs) appointment or whatever, then you can not only get diagnosed with something that is a, is not a representation of what the body's actually doing from German new medicine perspective, but also then you initiate a new biological program because of the shock of thinking you're about to die. It's called a death fright. And that's why pulmonary cancers 
are the most common source of uh, metastases, right? So-called metastases, because in their rubric, you know, and it's not just theirs, it's this guy, Dr. Hammer, who's, you know, evidenced this with tens of thousands of CAT scans confirming that every single time this is how it looks in these particular um, biological programs. But so, so not only are you hexed, but then you actually, you know, have new pathology generated by the pointing of that bone. And, you know, it's, once you understand it, once you know, everything kind of makes sense, right? Like why yeah. we're so sick, why we feel so scared of ourselves, why we, you know, are living in this survival mode. Of course we are, right? Because we have the been given the impression that if we just line everything up right, we could be kind of safe, but we have to participate in this really obedient way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I always encourage everyone, including myself, to never make decisions when you believe that you don't have a choice, right? So mm-hmm. she might think, oh, I have to get chemo. I have three weeks to le- live. I have no choice. Of course, <laughs> that's an illusion, right? If you mm-hmm. want to choose that, choose it. But don't ever make the decision because you don't have a choice. And my mentor, you know, he had 27 years in his career of treating terminal cancers, stage four cancers, with the longest term outcomes that have ever been documented. And it was a n- largely nutrition-based protocol, a lifestyle protocol, just like mine. And Um, It was really his field of belief that endures to this day that I think activated that, that, you know, self-healing response and resolved the fear, right? Like I have a former patient, Ali Zek, who's very public about our connection and she's an incredible activist. I highly recommend finding her on Telegram and and Instagram while she's still there. Uh, (laughs) And she says, you know, all that I really did for her, I mean, we published her cases, so extraordinary. All that I ever did for her was tell her that she's not crazy. That's Aww. it. That's literally it, you know? And then she followed, you know, some basic lifestyle stuff. Um, but I actually believed that at the time. And so I was able to transmit that and give her permission to understand her experience through a different lens of meaning, right? And appreciate her own uh, gifts and, and unique sensitivities through a different lens. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And people just need that reinforcement to believe that they can heal. And I, and it's so important. I mean, to hear it from someone like you too, even though like you don't necessarily want to outsource that again, but, but it's not heard enough and it, and you need to believe that within yourself and it's nice to have that support system. So I just, I just love your work. I really appreciate you giving us um, your time. I know we're over a little bit, but I, I love talking to you and, and hopefully I can come visit you. My family loves Florida and I'm always like, I need to find my people in Florida if I'm going to be spending more time there, especially with what's going on in California. So there's a lot, a lot of people here. I mean, it's, I mean, we have like ecstatic dance, our friends who run ritual experiences do ecstatic dance twice a month. And there's like 75 people and every single one or more hundred people. I mean, there's wow. all over the place festivals. Like there are so many people here who honestly aren't activists. They aren't even necessarily like coming from the, you know, we're going to like, don't, don't tread on me vibes. They yeah. just have decided they're going to keep living their damn lives. Period. Totally. Yeah. And so it's really a beautiful place to be. And California, yikes. I mean, I don't know how, how long it's going to be um, tolerable there. And it's, it's probably important that, that folks like you hold it down. Right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I'm definitely tossing and turning with it. I'm like, do I run away? Do I like stay yeah. in, you know, what do I do yeah, here yeah. at home? And it's just constantly something I'm, I'm considering, but, but talking to people like you and, and sharing this information, it's, it's healing for me. And, and like you said, like you just feel seen and heard and, and that's in, in something of itself. So thank you so much, Kelly. We love you and we really appreciate you. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>